Hello, and welcome to this episode of Equally Funny, a podcast where we talk through and break down a social justice issue or concept in each episode and hopefully make you laugh along the way. That's the goal. I'm your host, Kate Rogan. Joining me today is Val Agnew. Thanks so much for joining us, Val. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kate. This is so exciting. I know. I'm really, really excited. So I want to tell the audience a little bit about you. So I'm going to read this bio that you sent me oh, and God. we're gonna we're gonna try and make you not blush. How's that? <laughs> We'll see how it goes. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, So Val started out in the business world, but quickly realized her love of entertaining folks was too strong to ignore. I feel that. Uh, She graduated from DePaul University with a master's in film and television production, while also participating heavily in the Chicago comedy scene, most recently as creative director of the IO Comedy Network until the theater's recent closure tier. Now she launched now she's launching the Trident Network with the help of the amazing founding team. And when she isn't running Trident operations, uh, Val works as a freelance filmmaker and video editor, small business consultant, and political campaign worker. Fingers and a lot of pies. I love it. <laughs> I love and, pie. Yeah. <laughs> pie. Oh man. Let's just <laughs> let's just cut it now and just do this up ep- this whole episode about pie. Yeah. Sounds um, good. But Val improvises with Comedy Sports Chicago and The Stacks, and she watches way too many Marvel Theory videos on YouTube, and she's been working on her tennis game. I feel like you're doing a lot, Val. Yeah. I mean, that's the the benefit of uh, your job vanishing and social lives vanishing all at once, like a Thanos snap, speaking of Marvel. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, you have a lot of time on your hands to, to do stuff. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So how have you gotten into tennis and why? So uh, my husband was a tennis player in high school and um, he was good. He was uh, all conference and doubles. And um, I had never really been into tennis. I was more of a a team sport type person. I played soccer my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, when we started, when he started coming with me to visit my parents who live in Florida, Uh, there are tennis courts there. And so he was like, let's go play tennis. And so we just like borrow the, you know, the courts from the, the place and, and play a little. And I was bad. Um, But then during the lockdown, uh, tennis kind of became a thing that we could do safely. And we found some friends who also like playing. And so we've, we all summer, we played doubles with our friends. And, um, and then when we went, we've been in Florida for the past few months with my parents. And so we played tennis like three, four, five times a week. And um, I would even sometimes have him run me through drills and all this stuff because I really wanted to get better. And so like I've, I'm like a passable tennis player and it's really fun. It's I prefer to like be do fitness like in a way like that, like playing sports or mm-hmm. something that's fun um, rather than like just going to the gym or something anyway. So it's like. Yeah. It was great. It's been such a great outlet during this time. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah. I may have to get into tennis. Um, Highly recommend. I feel like uh, if I were going to pick tennis or golf, I'd pick tennis uh, to learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, my family is more of a golf family, if, like between those two. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there were efforts made earlier in my life to try and teach me how to play golf. And I just don't like it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just don't like it. 
Like my brother texted me yesterday, I guess recently or today, maybe it's like National Siblings Day. And he was like, so who wants to like get on a Zoom call and like watch golf with me? And I was like, this sounds awful. Like, what what are you talking about? No, like in real life, golf seems bad enough. But then like having to watch it on TV when I have no understanding of anything that's good or bad seems seems like a bad um a bad experience for me but I'm happy for him that he has something he can watch on TV yeah you know I never understood watching golf either my dad sometimes does that my uncle watches golf almost exclusively Uh, (laughs) (laughs) like literally that's all he does is either play golf or watch golf and uh I just don't I don't understand it no I really don't but I mean some people love it so I liked I liked Happy Gilmore as a younger person I mean Uh I guess I still like it Uh uh-huh uh you know are you familiar with that film I, I definitely am. And uh, I'm just like, oh, right. Like, what was the plot of Happy Gilmore? I, I also get it confused with Billy Madison. And I'm like, right. is that the one with Bradley Whitford? And it's not. No, it's not. Um, Happy Gilmore, he is a hockey player turned oh, golfer. Right. right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that movie. Okay. It's so stupid. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as are all Adam Sandler movies. But yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I used to try and hit the golf ball that way, which mm-hmm. I was actually more successful at than hitting it the way you're supposed to yeah yeah so i've definitely been to a driving range like in high school and just been like no whiffing it completely this is not something that works for me yeah um and i'm not interested in learning is the thing i've (laughs) settled into as an adult i've just released ever wanting to learn golf Um, yeah it's such an expensive hobby it's really expensive yeah which i feel like plays a little bit into our our episode topic for the day so talking about golf golf does feel like a very privileged sport and we are going to talk about privilege today um but I do want to like preface when I when we first talked through like doing this episode I was like okay great yeah let's do an episode on privilege and it'll be fine and we'll just like look up some articles and it'll be great um and I think as I got into it, I can't speak for you. It it felt like this topic is, is really enormous. Right. And was a little bit uh, overwhelming. I think when I first looked at how to talk about this topic in a 40, you know, like a 45 minute podcast episode when it feels like it touches everything and impacts everything. Um, So want to like assure the listeners like there are all different types of privilege and we'll hit on those in future episodes but today is really kind of like you said at one point when we were on the on a phone call you're like it's like a ten thousand foot view we're doing like an overview today of the concept the history of the concept when it first came onto the scene sort of our experiences of navigating initial sort of understanding of privilege and engagement with the topic and then we'll kind of close out with where people can learn more and um and some actions that they can take in their own lives to to develop an awareness of privilege and engage with the topic further but yeah i I remember like reading about this and just being like oh shit this is a lot yeah (laughs) i don't know if you felt that way it's a lot (laughs) No, it de- it definitely is a lot. I think it's good though to start with like, is it primer, primer? I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, let's go with primer because it sounds cool. Let's go with uh, premiere. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, premiere episode. Uh, <laughs> just to sort of uh, you know introduce the idea 
where it came from so that you can do subsequent episodes mm -hmm. uh, with other cool people, cooler than yeah. me, um, about uh, the more specific aspects of privilege. Mm -hmm. um, I do feel like we have to take a beat and uh, pause and say, there's probably nobody cooler than you. We're all <laughs> equally cool. So just want to get that out there. <laughs> I need That's to work on my positive self-talk. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do feel like sometimes, especially this year during the pandemic, sometimes I've been like, maybe this is toxic positivity that I'm doing to myself. Like shit's real bad, right? Like yeah. I don't know the balance of, of positive self-talk versus like, oh man, reality sucks right now sometimes. But true, yeah. true. Yeah. And we'll talk about this more later, but you can't get too caught up in self-flagellation or like feeling yeah. bad about feeling good either because that doesn't do anything for anybody either. So okay. don't don't be too hard on yourself. All right. I like this little pep talk that we've just given each other. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. So we're going to dive in. We're going to, here's a, I'm going to do a quick overview of, of privilege. Um, like we said, it's a big topic. And today we're just going to kind of do the 10,000 foot view. Um, so in terms of like a definition of privilege, I really like Ijoma Aluo's uh, definition from uh, So You Want to Talk About Race, her book that she wrote. And it's real simple. And she defines privilege as an advantage or set of advantages that you have that others do not. And I'm like, I like that. Like, real mm -hmm. simple and easy to sort of understand as a foundational statement. And I think when I think of privilege... I tend to, when I think about privilege, when I read about privilege, I tend to encounter sort of like two kind of key concepts that I want to talk through with little stories that I've developed to hopefully help illustrate, illustrate the concepts. I love a story. Um, yeah. So the first issue we're going to talk about is sort of like freedom from having to worry about some shit. Like that's what privilege does for people. It creates some freedom from you having to worry about some shit. And so here's, here's my example. And feel free to interject. Um, but okay. let's say in a post-COVID world, like your friend texts you on Sunday morning and is like, hey, do you want to go get some tater tots? And you're like, holy shit, yes, I want to go get tater tots. It's been so long since I've gotten to have hot, delicious tater tots. Like where and when am I meeting you? And your friend texts back like, yay, tots with some sort of an emoji. And she's like, let's try this new spot that just opened up in an old building downtown. And then because you happen to use a wheelchair to help with your mobility, you go down the following like thought rabbit hole as your friend is just like sitting there with those like three dots waiting for you to respond on the text message chain. And you start thinking, okay, she said it was in an old building downtown. How old is old? Is this place going to be accessible to wheelchair users? I know there's a whole law that requires places to be accessible, but based on previous experience, it feels like some older buildings have exemptions or just don't follow the rules. Also, maybe I should know these rules better. Like I should actually read the Americans with Disabilities Act at some point and memorize some sections just so I always have that knowledge off the top of my head. Maybe I should go to law school to really get an understanding. Wait, no, that's insane. I went to school to be a graphic designer and I like my job. I don't need to go to law school. This is fucking America. God damn it. I should just be able to go enjoy a plate of tater tots without having to get a law degree to know if old buildings have to be accessible. And oh my God, I'm going to have to like call somebody on the phone and talk to them about this. Like gross. And so here's here we see that like that's 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 the end of the thought rabbit hole. You're welcome for that. 
That was a really nice story. Thank you. Thank you so much. So in this example, here is what we see uh, sort of how being able-bodied is an example of privilege because you don't have to worry about that thought rabbit hole. You don't have to go down that that sort of like endless sort of moving through potential possibilities and also to assure that you are just able to access tater tots, right? Instead, you just get to sort of show up and live that tater tot lifestyle. You don't have to remain vigilant to ensure that you are treated as a fully enfranchised human. You just get to go live your life. So that's kind of an example of like freedom from having to worry about some shit. Um, The next kind of key aspect of privilege that I think comes up a lot and is a little bit stickier is the idea of unearned advantages, right? And unearned advantages are, like I said, sometimes stickier because people tend to talk about how they have had to work hard for everything that they have and talking about how things weren't handed to them on a silver platter. And it can be difficult to engage with the idea of the fact that maybe you benefit from a system uh, and have some unearned advantages that you haven't worked hard for. But again, I thought a little story might might help. And so uh, this time we're going to talk about selling Girl Scout cookies as the story here. Okay. Um, are you familiar with Girl Scout cookies, Val? Were you- uh, do I have four boxes of Girl Scout cookies in my kitchen right now? <laughs> okay. So you're, you're familiar with the, with the economics of Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> yeah. I was never in the Girl Scouts, but gotcha. I certainly appreciate their cookies. Okay. What's your favorite flavor? Probably the coconut ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're so good. I, uh, I hate those. I hate coconut. Oh, wow. Well, I guess that's the end of this show. Yeah. So you should probably leave now. <laughs> What's your favorite? Um, I don't know that I have one, actually. Like, I was a Girl Scout or I, I was a brownie. So I don't know if I actually, like, made it up to Girl Scouts. So you I like think- brownies? In general, I love brownies. I liked being one. I like eating them. I like, you know, going out for them and like just having like a great first date over like a warm brownie. Like, have you ever done that? I never have. No. Now it's, now it's on my list. <laughs> it sounds great. I talked myself into it. <laughs> I was in brownies for one day. Uh huh. They were baking. And I was like, okay, I did it. Can I go back to playing floor hockey, please? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's a fair experience. <laughs> that tells like, you everything you need to know about me. Yeah. Although I do feel like <laughs> I, I love that. I love that anecdote. So we're talking about unearned advantages. <laughs> we're going to use Girl Scouts to illustrate the concept. Um, okay. So clearly Val and I are, are familiar with, with Girl Scout cookies. But for people who don't know, uh, here's a quick primer, primer, premiere Premier. on Girl Scout cookies. Great. Here's a premiere on Girl Scout cookies. Uh, so individual Girl Scouts like go out into their communities. They sell boxes of mediocre tasting cookies. I know that that's a controversial statement to some people. I disagree. Okay. All right. Fair. Anyway, they go out and they sell debatably mediocre tasting cookies to to their community. And then depending on the number of boxes they sell, they can like get a certain number of points that they can then like trade in for fun items. So like you sell 100 boxes, you get X number of points. And with those points, you can get this stuffed animal or this game or this electronic. And I think it also raises money for charity 
Or maybe for the Girl Scouts itself. I'm not sure. But I, I think, think technically so. the Girl Scouts are a charity. So, so I maybe th- it raises money for itself. Yeah, I think it's raising money for, like for their troop, I think. Okay. <laughs> Which is gonna... ultimately, I presume, paying some kind of membership fee to yeah. the Girl Scouts of America. Oh, man, we're going to get massacred by listeners who are Girl Scouts and just tell us. Sorry, gals. Sorry, sorry <laughs> ladies. Okay. Okay. So that's that's the premiere on Girl Scout cookies. Um, so imagine you're a Girl Scout and that it's cookie selling time. You and your best friend from the troop, we'll call her Haley, are super excited and talking big about how many boxes you're going to sell and all the great toys you'll get to buy with your points. It's the first year you're allowed to sell cookies. You're like, you're fucking hyped, right? And you both like head home to get started. You have a great first week. Neighbors are buying cookies. Friends and family are buying cookies. You even talked someone at the bus stop into buying your cookies. And at the end of the week, you've sold 72 boxes and like you're feeling great. Are you with me, Val? Are you you with me still in this story? I am so with you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So you're feeling great. Salivating over cookies. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool, cool. Well, you have them, so (laughs) you can go get them. Um, You catch up with Haley at the next meeting and tell her about your success. And because you're a good and nice person, you ask her how her cookie sales are going. Haley tells you that it's going pretty good. She's sold 813 boxes so far. And at first, you're like, oh, she just must have a weird way of saying the number 83 because that's much more realistic. And then she's like, no, I meant what I said. I've sold 813 boxes. And you're like, I don't get how that's possible. I've been like working my ass off for these 72 boxes. And here's what you learn about how Haley has sold so many goddamn cookies. Haley is the youngest of five children, all girls, and all her older sisters were Girl Scouts. So like when one sibling outgrew Girl Scouts, she just passed down all her cookie buying contacts to the next sister, who then built on that and passed it down to the next sister and so on and so forth. So Haley's got a fuck ton of leads that she's starting with. Haley's mom also works at a salon as a stylist and has set up year after year for all her coworkers and clients to buy cookies from her kids. She's selling cookies as she's doing highlights. She's doing cuts. She's doing updos for prom all while Haley is in school selling cookies this whole time. Then she passes the order form over to Haley's dad, who took part in a weekend golf tournament. Talking about privilege here. Golf comes up every single time, I feel mm-hmm. like. At his country club, where he sells cookies up and down that damn golf course. He even pays his caddy a few bucks to, like, take the order form back to his college dorm during the week and sell cookies to college kids. After learning this about Haley, you're like, oh, I guess I understand how you have such high sales now. And you're a little jealous of her numbers and all the support she has in selling cookies, but you're a good sport and you wish Haley the best of luck with, like, the final week of sales. Now, needless to say, Haley is the top seller in the troupe. At a troop meeting, she gets awarded a certificate of recognition and has a chance to make an acceptance speech. In it, she talks about the importance of hard work and making every cookie count and every cookie sale she made, how she's really proud of herself for doing it all on her own. And here's where you lose it a little bit, because you know that Haley, no doubt, has done some work to sell so many cookies, but it also seems like she was born into a system built by people like her for someone like her to succeed at selling cookies. And she doesn't even fucking acknowledge that maybe she had some advantages just kind of handed to her in life. And then you get really salty and you're like, how can this little cookie bitch be so blind to her privilege and say that it's just a fucking hard work. It's just her fucking hard work that got her to where she is. So 
you and Haley are still friends, but you think about Haley a little bit differently now because she hasn't acknowledged all of the help and support and unearned advantages that she had to help her succeed in selling cookies. She chalks it up to her own hard work when her mom has been selling cookies while she's doing highlights. So that's the primer on unearned advantages. Any reactions, Val? Yeah, I mean, I think a really big fundamental part of this, and we'll talk more about this, but is um, <clears throat> like the almost necessity of being blind to your advantages mm -hmm. uh, that perpetuates this. Um, and it, it comes from sort of a, a both self-preservation aspect and also a, a systemic preservation aspect. So like the entire concept of privilege probably couldn't exist if enough people were aware of their own advantages. Mm. Um, but also like it feels bad to like have achieved something and have to admit that at least some portion of it was not because of your hard work. Yeah, that's yeah. a hard thing. That's a hard thing to come to terms with. And you have to be made aware of it because the system is designed for you to be blind to it. Yeah, yeah. Love all of that. Absolutely true. And it is it's um, the system like like you were saying, like the system operates to help keep you from that information, right? Like it's it's a perpetuating system that wants to perpetuate itself. And therefore, it works hard to keep you ignorant of this privilege. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel great, like you said, when you first start coming sort of like online to these concepts. The other aspect of it that makes it difficult is that if you experience privilege in one aspect of your life, but you uh, don't in another, you might have an even harder time accepting the fact that you experience privilege in one aspect of your life because you witness other people having privilege when you don't in another aspect, which is, we'll talk about more about this too, but that's intersectionality, right? Because everyone has a combination of privileges and disadvantages uh, depending on who they are. So um, yeah, I think that's another piece of this too. It's harder to swallow when you feel like, well, but but I have this, like, you know, in this, in this story context, you know, both of these girls are girls uh, mm -hmm. and there are disadvantages to being a girl in our society. Uh, and so one might argue, well, but you know, the, the boys don't even have to sell cookies. They, they're, they get to do all kinds of other stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So uh, <laughs> like we're being pressed into service here for, <laughs> <laughs> for, yeah. for fundraising yeah. for the Girl Scouts of America. Um, but yeah, so I like I, I think that there's just so many um, angles of this that are um, uh, structural to all mm. of this that are that are like fundamental that um, it's almost like uh, have you ever seen this is kind of a tangent. Have you ever seen um, they made an actual invisibility cloak? No. Tell me more about this immediately, okay. please. It's it's essentially like a cloak made of a billion tiny mirrors, not a billion, but a lot of tiny mirrors. Um, so they kind of reflect a little tiny bit uh -huh. of each angle, which makes it seem like it's you're just seeing through it which is bizarre 
right? Mm -hmm. But basically like that kind of, I I think about that, like the the way that like this whole thing is constructed is it's like meant to obscure what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyway, Mm -hmm. that's my weird tangent. I love that weird tangent. And (laughs) I feel like now that we've done our premiere on privilege, um, you're going to tell us a little bit about the history. I am. I am indeed. Um, So privilege, the way I would describe it is it's a tangible manifestation of a construct, which is supremacy, right? So it's sort of like a byproduct of something that we've invented. Um, But it's a real byproduct with real repercussions. Um, So in theory, like this, the actual existence of privilege is, has always been because Mm. humans inherently use and rely on supremacy to justify actions, to operate in, in society. So Historically speaking, this has always existed, but um, the first person to sort of put their finger on it in terms of a concept um, was W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, He's often credited, at least with with first pointing out uh, the concepts behind privilege. So um, he he talked a lot about how like white people were were and are generally less aware or or completely unaware of discrimination or any advantage that they have for being white. Um, And uh, he also talked a lot about um, how in the context of uh, working class whites, how they were complicit in the power structure and reinforcing the power structure um, because they were given higher status than their black counterparts um, in order essentially to enlist them in reinforcing uh, the white supremacist structure. Um, and so he was the first person who kind of discussed this in an explicit way. Um, and actually, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, used the word privilege in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, he said, quote, lamentably, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privilege voluntarily. End quote. Oof, uh, yeah. And... <laughs> Yeah, that is, uh, that, that hits the nail on the head, I would say. <laughs> yeah, another just okay like real, in with, on, real simple, but like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a zinger. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Speaking the truth. Um, and then uh, some time went by and people predictably ignored this for the most part um, until 1989 when, um, two things happened. First of which is Peggy McIntosh wrote a paper in 1989 called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And she was coming at the concept of privilege first from being a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, She was obviously aware of, of male privilege, the existence of the advantages that men have and how they were not aware of these privileges. And she was the first person to kind of nail down the two major characteristics of privilege, which we uh, have already talked about a little bit, which is that it's invisible and that those privileges are unearned. Um, she, She said, quote, I have come to see white privilege 
as an invisible package of unearned assets, which I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. Um, she, she also talked about in, in reference to white privilege, which she kind of extrapolated to from her place of understanding male privilege, um, by talking about how whites are, are centered in society and are sort of, um, coded as neutral or normative mm. in society. Um, she said, quote, whites are taught to think of their lives as morally neutral, normative, and average, and also ideal, so that when we work to benefit others, this is seen as work which will allow them to be more like us, which I find uh, interesting. I know. I find yeah. that so interesting because, um, first of all, obviously, it's, like I said, it's centering white people, and it's sort of saying, like, what, whatever we, whatever privilege is or whatever the like good life is is what our life is or what we want our lives to be which is not true um and it also i think makes it feel as she kind of referenced like we have to grant something to other people as mm. as privileged folks um and in certain cases that feels like giving up something um which i think is why uh, this as a concept is very difficult for a lot of people to accept and receives a lot of pushback. Yeah. 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 It's like uh, placing our own sort of version of the ideal life and existence as the truth, right. As the yeah. epitome. Right. And then uh, centering that experience to the point that we eliminate other possibilities for what a good life could be. And so, yeah, it feels like limited access to the building blocks for that good life. And mm -hmm. we want to hoard those things. Right. Um, ooh, what a mind, what a mind, I don't want to say mind fuck, but a little bit of a mind fuck. It is yeah. a mind fuck. It's yeah. basically telling us, it's like, it's almost imprisoning us in our own privilege because it makes it feel like it's something we have we possess mm. and it makes it feel almost uh like it's a limited resource which it's not but it makes yeah. it feel that way um and so if if our life is a limited like if our way of life is a limited resource then of course we're not going to want to give it up right we're not going to want to make room for other people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's all part of the, the long con of privilege. <laughs> Definitely a long con. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, look at this gilded cage I've built for myself. <laughs> Seriously. That's what it is. It is a gilded cage. Yeah. There's a good subtitle for this episode. I like it. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, it's to that point, actually, there's a good quote, another good quote from Macintosh, um, keeping most people unaware that freedom of confident action is there for just a small number of people, props up those in power, and serves to keep power in the hands of the same groups that have most of it already. So again, just sort of pretending as if this is a limited resource, pretending as if it is uh, it is a trade-off, a zero-sum game, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Makes it so that the people who have the privilege, have the power, 
won't give it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, as a trans, as a, a good segue, Macintosh also said, "All of the oppressions are interlocking," which I think is a perfect reference to intersectionality, um, which I would like to talk about next. Because also in 1989, Kimberly Crenshaw, who was a lawyer, um, was writing her own piece on this subject. Um, she was she spent much of her early career. I don't even know if it was her early career. She spent much of her career mm -hmm. um, pushing back against the idea that the law in particular was inherently without inequality. So the, the sort of general consensus was that uh, people, human beings are biased. But if you remove the human imperfections from any scenario in a legal context, then there will be no more bias. Right. Like the law itself is neutral. Right. right. It's right. like the human beings are are fucking it up. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and she uh, did not believe that that was the case, probably she, based on her own experience. And she's and, like, uh, I have a few notes about the law <laughs> itself. I just want to share some. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, the the obviously her her argument, which I agree with, is that the system, because it was created by people, <laughs> was also biased in and of itself. Um, and uh, so she she coined the term intersectionality in a 1989 paper, big year, 1989, mm. um, on critical race theory called Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex. Uh, she argued that the instances of discrimination from a legal perspective, uh, or she argued that in instances of discrimination from a legal perspective, it was impossible to parse different aspects of bias tre treatment. If a person was both black and female, for example, the discrimination faced was a factor of both aspects together rather than each alone. You can't separate those things from each other. Um, she said, quote, individuals have individual identities that intersect in ways that impact how they are viewed, understood and treated. She said, she also said, intersectionality was a prism to bring to light dynamics within discrimination law that weren't being appreciated by the courts. In particular, courts seem to think that race discrimination was what happened to all black people across gender and sex discrimination was what happened to all women. And mm. if that was your framework, of course, what happens to black women and other women of color is going to be difficult to see. So again, kind of blinded to the nuances, right? So um, there's a really cool uh, uh, graphic called the or called the Wheel of Privilege. Um, we'll include it, I think, in the uh, sh the show notes. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like it's very pretty too. Like yeah, for something so heinous, it's also yeah. very beautiful. But right. Yeah, it's very it's, helpful. Yeah, it's a very great. Like it's. I'm a very visual person, and it's a very um, nice way to kind of understand in a visual sense what intersectionality is and mm -hmm. what marginalization is. Um, so obviously, given all of this great work and uh, this um, high minded discussion of these concepts, uh, people got really mad because uh, their positions of power were being uh, challenged. Uh, so as the uh, it's just it's real predictable, isn't it? <laughs> so predictable, especially <laughs> like a, a white woman and a black woman writing about these concepts in the 80s. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it was just like welcomed with open arms and not questioned at all. Like, right. Yeah. 
totally. <laughs> um, it's basically like a, a, a what do you call it? Uh, positive correlation, a, mm-hmm. a positive uh, correlation between the awareness and sort of public, the public awareness of of privilege or the concept of privilege, and also the pushback against the concept of privilege. Um, so. Part of it, as I I think I mentioned earlier, people who are currently in a position of privilege feel threatened um, when this kind of discussion happens. And it's for one or both of two reasons, from what I can gather. Um, They either are reckoning with the fact that they that they are where they are because of their inherent privilege and not because they worked really hard and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and earned every single thing that they ever got. And or because any shift in the system makes them feel as if their position within it is threatened. Mm. Um, Probably both. Uh, And uh, one quote from Macintosh that I think is really uh, on the nose here is the pressure to avoid it is great for in facing it. I must give up the myth of meritocracy. Yeah. Yeah. And Crenshaw said, they're deeply concerned by the practice of intersectionality. And moreover, what they concluded intersectionality would ask or demand of them and of society. All right, ladies, just again, just <laughs> really incisive language that just gets to the heart of the matter. I know. <laughs> why Why do I need to speak when they say it better? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel their words through you. It's impacting me. It's hitting mm-hmm. me. I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to say about sort of like the history of the concept? Um, no, I mean, the only other thing that I had written down here, but um, I kind of already mentioned it, is that the the intersectionality piece makes it that much more difficult for uh for people to acknowledge their own privilege, because if they have experienced some kind of disadvantage in another part of their life, they're like, well, they get even more, that much more defensive uh, than the average person. Mm-hmm. Um, um, not the average person, there is no average person, um, than, than someone who has experienced privilege in the area that they feel they've experienced disadvantage. Um, so uh, yeah, that's that's the only other thing. And that's obviously speaking to that intersectionality piece. But yeah, that's that's pretty much like the very, very, very high level uh, history of the concept of privilege. Well, thanks so much, Val. I feel like I learned something, even though I have a PhD in women's studies, I am sure that I learned all of this um, a while ago and was familiar with 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 some of it. But um, like, just having a refresher and I didn't I hadn't looked back into the W.E.B. Du Bois stuff and um, I feel like Peggy McIntosh's article and Kimberly Crenshaw's work is like foundational reading for people going through those courses, but mm-hmm. um, like such a great reminder and premiere on um, on priv- the history of privilege and intersectionalities as as concepts. Um, okay, so we've as I'm shuffling papers in the background. Apologies if people can hear that on the recording. <laughs> We're just keeping it real. I'm recording in a closet. It's happening. Um, <laughs> So we've covered sort of like the overview of the concept of privilege. We've talked through the history and the development of the concept from sort of people writing historically about it through the modern era. 
Um, I thought it might be helpful to sort of talk through our own journeys of developing an awareness of privilege as co-hosts, and then we'll talk through kind of where we are at in that journey currently. Um, And I can go first. I mean, like for me, I think where I first encountered privilege as a concept, it wasn't until my master's, like until I got into... um, my MA in women's and gender studies and did a lot of this foundational reading, like read Peggy McIntosh, read Kimberly Crenshaw, read a lot of like sort of foundational feminist works. And um, on the one hand, it feels like I had a crash course, like a pretty intensive course in in these concepts because of women's and gender studies. And then at the same time, I, I do remember feeling um, like overwhelmed by wrestling with these concepts, right? Like when they first come up and how to think about and reflect on your own experience. Again, moving through sort of like defensiveness and then getting into acceptance a little bit and moving then into like guilt and just running through so many, like our brain is wonderful at remembering (laughs) so many awful things, right? And, um, And just now you've put them through the prism of this new piece of knowledge and you're like, oh shit, that wasn't appropriate or how do I feel about the fact that I am even able to be in this master's program, right? Like it it, it just, it brings up a lot. And I'm wondering um, if you had a similar experience when you first encountered these concepts um, and if you could tell us about it. Sure. Um, So the first time I really became in any way aware of my privilege. And I would probably say that I'm still in a lot of ways unaware of a lot of my privileges. It's so hard to see everything. Um, But I think that I went to a a state school uh, and I had grown up prior to that in both a city where I went to a private elementary school. uh, And actually, so my, my, I am Jewish. My mother is Jewish. And this town that I grew up in was more than half uh, Jewish. Mm. So I had a very, very privileged, very kind of insular upbringing um, in in a lot of ways. Uh, and so I went to um, to undergrad at a state school where all of a sudden I was exposed to tons of people from a lot of different uh, backgrounds, different countries, different races, different economic uh, uh, backgrounds. And um, it was the first time that I really like understood, uh, you know, where that that we came from very different places and and how much I had um, in a lot of ways compared to a lot of other people. I would invite my friends to go to dinner and like to go out to dinner mm-hmm. and they would say no sometimes because they couldn't you know they couldn't afford to go out to dinner and it was i had never in my life had a friend who couldn't afford to go out to dinner and mm-hmm. it was such a basic thing and it you know it was it was a a very you know it, it's one of those moments kind of to the point of like 
it's really hard to accept this kind of thing because it makes you feel gross. Like it it made me feel really gross that I was like, not only that I was able to go out to dinner and my friend couldn't, but also that I had put them in a position where they had to say that to me. Um, and they probably could have lied, but I actually appreciate them for not, um, Mm -hmm. for, for opening my eyes. And I also have like kind of a weird relationship with, um, with privilege because I have, I have a certain amount of, uh, guilt for, um, like passing Mm. (laughs) in certain areas of my life. Um, like for example, as I mentioned, I'm Jewish, I'm technically Jewish. My mother is Jewish. <clears throat> but I, my father is not, so I don't have a Jewish name. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't look, if there is a look, yeah. some people would say there is, I, I don't know, but, um, you know, I don't look particularly Jewish if there is a look for being Jewish. Um, I, I'm first generation. My mm-hmm. mom is an immigrant. Um, but I don't, but, I, but my dad is like, he has ancestors who fought in the revolutionary war. So like, I don't have a lot of the lifestyle aspects that come or came with being first generation, being the child of an immigrant or immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also queer, but I'm in a heterosexual marriage. Uh, So I don't like, I literally pass as heterosexual. Like, like Mm -hmm. a lot of people probably don't know that I'm queer. Um, And so I, like I benefit from the fact that I don't present as these things. um, And that is weird because I am these things and I am in those communities, but I sometimes wonder whether I'm, whether I should take up space in those communities because I don't have to, like, I don't have to be, you know? And so mm-hmm. that I get like caught in this like wheel of guilt and all this stuff. And it's, it's completely unproductive. <laughs> it's a completely unproductive cycle mm-hmm. um, of guilt. Uh, and so I, I try to, uh, I try to, um, you know, take, take the fact that I have a lot of these privileges, whether it's because I just have them or because I pass and have them because of that. Um, and, and try to say, okay, well, I have these things. What can I do to, to be of service? What can I do to like help deconstruct this system Mm -hmm. so that other people can have these privileges Cause then also I don't have to feel guilty if I can help. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Selfish too. <laughs> now it's, it's really interesting though, because I feel like a lot of what you're talking about is, is something we've talked about throughout the show is sort of like the invisibility of privilege, but then also like something we hit on really early. is just like the fr- privilege is also the freedom from having to worry about shit. Right. And like, clearly you are engaged in, thinking about how you fit into these communities that you are a part of, but the fact that you pass is not potentially, you know, belonging to these communities or these identities. And all of the mental work that you're doing to negotiate that that space, right? Like a big aspect of privilege is the invisibility of it, is just I don't have to think about all of that, all of that stuff when in reality, we all have to think about all of this stuff, right? Like that, that's, that's the sort of, I think maybe one of the first steps is like, or maybe sort of like the freedom from having to worry about shit is maybe like the first thing that's easier to recognize in our own privilege recognition journeys. And then coming to terms with unearned advantages, maybe as like the, 
the next step or like part next in the process. I feel like that has how it's sort of happened for me, but it also sounds like, you know, we aren't done with this journey of engaging with privilege in any way. Like I know myself, like, I feel like sometimes I'll get like a handle on it and then like another layer just like presents itself and it requires us to develop awareness but then stay engaged in that awareness to like you said use the privileges that we have to help dismantle systems of power right Mm -hmm. like to dismantle it within our own sort of personal sphere of influence but then expand beyond the personal and think about how privilege like Kimberly Crenshaw was talking about like impacts the way that systems have been built And we have to question how those systems have been built and who had advantages and who had disadvantages. Totally. Yeah, it's a lot. It is. Um, Anything else like uh, that you want to add about your own personal journey um, with privilege? Well, you know, it's funny because like all this stuff I just talked about was very like me centered. And that's another part of this is Mm -hmm. like, decentering yourself from from that because like by nature of being privileged you are at the center um yeah. sort of what we talked about before and uh you know it's not it I, it is and isn't about each of us right it, it like of course it's about us because we are humans and we are all part of this but um i think that trying to separate out and and remove or at least push past the guilt and the defensiveness and all the things that kind of come along with with all of this and trying to refocus that energy on being productive in some way um is is really helpful because it, it just that inherently kind of decenters you um but at the same time something really important about that is to keep in mind that like again as for example as a white person uh I'm not granting like I'm not I like avoiding being patronizing, avoiding sort of the idea of like I'm giving something to other people like that's not what it is. It's it's making more space. It's acknowledging that there is plenty of room here for everybody and making that room and like helping like pull people up because, you know, this is kind of a tangent. Feel free to cut this. But I I. uh I was thinking about how it's kind of interesting that a lot of this stuff came out in the eighties. Cause I, I remember reading or learning in, in school about um, how like a lot of women who were successful in business in, in the eighties were uh, really reticent to turn around and help other women. Um, and I, like, I think that's really interesting because they were, perpetuating the very system that made it harder for them. Um, but it's, it's because once you get the thing, once you have the advantage, especially if you didn't have it to begin with, you are very want to give it up. You are very, uh, uh, protective of it. Yeah. It's, 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 Becoming a participant in the system that you fought so hard against, right? And right. maintaining that that system of power. Yeah. Um, which I think is simultaneously like an understandable human inclination, particularly when it does feel like a zero-sum game, 
right? Like when it's been framed as a zero sum game and you've bought into that right. framing. Um, but ultimately so damaging and not helpful at all mm -hmm. um, for the purpose of driving inclusivity, creating more access to all sorts of opportunities. And um, and it shields you from like having to feel bad about that, right? It shields you within that privilege. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think we've gotten better, but I don't, I don't know. It's so hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. I mean, we have, but I think that the, like everything, we're always trying to like fix the system that exists rather than breaking it and yeah. starting over. And because breaking it and starting over is, seems so daunting mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but in the end it's probably more efficient and certainly more effective <laughs> i think in most cases it requires a lot more than just sort of like making adjustments to the current way of doing things and rather blowing it up and starting over yeah 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 um yeah I agree. It's like trying to map solutions onto a system that's broken is only going to get us so far. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've talked through overview, history, our own personal journey, like summing up sort of like some advice for listeners. Obviously, privilege is like a moving target. So the journey to developing awareness of our own privileges and how they sit within larger systems of power and shift depending on context, it's a big issue to unpack. And like, we've only like scratched the surface here and we are gonna do deeper dives on things like white privilege, able-bodied privilege, uh, economic privilege, all sorts of different privileges. We'll devote um, whole episodes to those. But for um, people who are interested in learning more, like what are some of our tips as co-hosts for places to start or to keep in mind along the journey? of um, engaging with privilege as a concept. You know, to, to the point of guilt, um, I, I have this, I had, I remember in college, I, I was feeling really guilty about, you know, my, my friends, like just that whole scenario that I described earlier about how, like, I, I was coming to terms with my own privilege and economic privilege, specifically in that context of, of my friends. And, um, my college roommate who came from more or less the same background as me, um, you know, I was talking to her about it and I was telling her how, you know, upset I was. And she was like, well, what, what does being guilty do for them? What, mm. is, what, what who, who does that serve? <laughs> and it was just this like, like mind blowing, like just one sentence. She was as, as effective as, as Macintosh and Crenshaw. Right. Um, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> she, uh, yeah. And she, you know, she was like, I, I have, you know, been aware of my privilege to some degree, my economic privilege again, specifically for a while. And, and, you know, I just, I don't see any value in stewing in it. Um, or, or even worse performing like, turning your guilt into a performance. Mm. Um, and, uh, and there's so much more value in, um, you know, channeling that into something productive. And so that's definitely something I think about a lot. So I love Marvel. Mm -hmm. And um, for those 
who don't know, the show that is currently airing on Disney Plus um, is Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And this show is really addressing race and economics and all this stuff, like just so much like supremacy, like they, they literally are using these terms and it's really remarkable. This, what this show is, is doing um, around these, these topics while also being a really fun, you know, superhero show. Um, and, and even though Captain America, the original Captain America in the MCU, Steve Rogers is not in this show. His legacy is, ever present because they're constantly talking about him and comparing him to, uh, you know, the people who were trying to be like him. And, mm-hmm. um, he, I've been thinking a lot about him in the context of privilege. Uh, and it's really interesting because he is a cis straight white superhuman man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his, instinct is always to protect to help to hold up to amplify uh to make space for other people um and i think that part of that is because at least in some ways he wasn't always in that position of of power um and so he's better able to kind of see where you know his his trajectory and how he got where he was Mm. um and he's never like patronizing about it but it's just it's really interesting like um there's a line i don't really feel like this is a spoiler but there's a new captain america and at one point he's like do you know who i am and it's like you you're you're like trying to like flex you know you're trying to like use your power and Steve Rogers would never do something like that because he recognized his power. He was chosen to be Captain America specifically because he was willing to give up everything for other people. And um, I think we should all try to be more like Captain America. We should all try to be more like Steve Rogers. uh, Who I've also just realized I literally have just made this connection. His name is Mr. Rogers. So like in a lot of ways, we should try to be like both the Mr. Rogers. (laughs) (laughs) it's so true oh no i like that i mean i also think about captain america a lot maybe for less pure reasons but superficial reasons yeah more superficial reasons but i think about him a lot and now i get to think about him in a different way thanks val like (laughs) yeah no problem i think about him that way too especially more more knives out uh chris Evans i haven't seen that i need to (gasps) i need to watch it i need need to to watch that movie i also need to start this this new series on disney plus uh what is it falcon and winter soldier yeah yeah Yeah. definitely um okay um for me like in terms of like some actions that people can take or where listeners can learn more we'll post a link to peggy mcintosh's article the invisible knapsack i think it's a good place to start like pretty good foundational article to read um i also found uh ijoma luo's chapter on privilege and so you want to talk about race really like helpful foundational and like very quick to read too. read the whole book but like that chapter is is really good um and then I also try to like, in because we talked about sort of like how privilege can sometimes fade into the background, right? Like it's something that we engage with and then we kind of forget about it. And so what I try to do is um, like automate or insert sort of 
privilege as a concept, learning about privilege into my daily activities through social media, right? So like I follow, and I'll include links to this in the in the show notes too, but I follow an account on Instagram called Check Your Privilege and then um, talks a lot about white privilege um, in the context of today's environment. And then I also follow an account on Twitter called um, SF Direwolf, which I just love the name of, um, who engages in a lot of, she's a disability rights activist and engages in a lot of um, sort of uh, commentary on able-bodied privilege as well in the context of, in the context of the current environment. So we'll include um, sort of links to all of this stuff in the show notes. And we've had like a pretty heavy episode, like privilege is a beast of a topic. And again, we've only just like <laughs> skipped, the, like just bounced off the surface of it, really. This <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> um, so I thought it could be fun to wrap up with uh, something a little bit lighter in a segment I like to call shit that legit doesn't matter. And um, we've talked a lot about Marvel today. So Val, we're each going to answer this question. If you had to go on a road trip with any like character from the Marvel universe, like this is like a multi-day road trip. You're in the car for a long time. Mm-hmm. Who would you go with and why? Well, I put a lot of thought into this. Okay. <laughs> and I have come down on the vision. Oh, because... <laughs> Tell me me more. Okay. Yeah. Um, So here's why. First of all, the vision is just like a really nice, not a person (laughs) to quote Uh the good place. Um, And, uh, (laughs) and uh, he is, uh, he's a good conversationalist. He is patient, um, but he's also very functional for a road trip. So he's basically like having like the greatest iPhone, GPS, radio system, computer ever, you know, on board with you. Plus, I'm going to assume that he can phase you through traffic, which is a huge as someone who just went on a long road trip recently and got stuck in six traffic jams in one state, mm-hmm. uh, being able to pass through traffic is huge. So not only would he be a great companion and he wouldn't eat your snacks because he doesn't eat, but oh he also would be a really practical companion. So that's why I chose the vision. Oh, wow, Val, you definitely put more thought into this than I did because <laughs> um, I'm winging it right now. <laughs> But I love all of these reasons. And so I'm going to be a little bit less careful in my selection, but then maybe you can talk me into why it's a good idea. I will Um, do. Okay. Um, Okay. So I was thinking like, uh, I was like the guardians of the galaxy, they have a great soundtrack, you know? So like, I feel like anybody from there could be a good, a good, uh, a good travel companion. But then like, I feel like Tony Stark, like similar to you, has like tools to get me through traffic and out of traffic and get to places more quickly, potentially. And mm-hmm. also just like has a lot of money and knows a lot of people. So I feel like we could just roll up into towns and be like the stars. True. Um, I feel like Nick Fury has a lot of dirt on a lot of people. That's and true. Then, and then the guy that like um, was his companion, Agent something, Agent Coulson. 
I feel like oh, he's yeah. just real pleasant, right? Like he'd be great <laughs> yeah, on a, road a delight. Trip. Yeah. Okay. But I have to pick somebody. And so I am going to pick. I'm going to pick. Uh, I'm blanking on his name now, but he's from Guardians of the Galaxy and he's that blue guy. Um, oh, uh, oh my God, Drax. Yes, I'm going to pick Drax because I love his literal nature and I feel like I would just enjoy fucking with that <laughs> on a long distance road trip. And then I think he'd let me pick the music, um, but would maybe like steal it from his Guardians of the Galaxy buddy so I don't have to make my own playlist. Yeah. And then uh, great for, for photos, like him at the Grand Canyon. That's let's, true. Let's do it. How do you feel about this selection? I like the selection. I definitely okay. think he'd be very fun uh, to be around. He also, if he sat still enough, he'd become invisible. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, he could uh, literally move cars out of the way. So you would also have a traffic solution. Uh -huh. um, yeah, no, he'd be very fun. He'd be very fun. I would maybe also want, um, oh, what is her name? his friend mm -hmm. um with the antenna yeah oh no i feel bad that i can't remember her name oh, yeah. um but yeah i think the two of them would be a fun tag team yeah 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 i love they have good banter they have great banter yeah <laughs> all right we've we've solved this problem great we each have our person picked out yep um well val this has been a delight thanks so much for joining us for this episode Thank you so much for having me. This was yeah. wonderful. I really appreciated uh, getting to do some homework that was worthwhile. <laughs> Great. I love it. Well, <laughs> why don't we all, we'll say goodbye, but I feel like, you know, I wish you a great week we're recording on a sunday and i hope that you have great thoughts about steve rogers about mr rogers i'll have great thoughts about steve rogers too as we leave this podcast um, and go into the week so thanks so much thanks <laughs>